If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We have moved on. Uh, I want to just say a special hello. There's a couple of you who are visiting with us today. I want to just say hello. Glad that you could join with us. For those of you who are regular members of Bridge Baptist Church, you know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, working our way through this book. And I don't want you to lose sight of where we are at in the text. Uh, We're going to take the next five, six, seven weeks, particularly as we get into chapter 10, verse 2, we're going to really focus on verse 2, verses 2 and 3 and and 4, and we're going to look at each of these apostles. And so we're going to take the next several weeks and and we're going to focus in on them. And so when we do that, the tendency is to sort of lose track of what's been going on in the flow of the text. So I just want to make sure you see what's been happening so you know what's coming. Jesus has, beginning in chapter, at the tail end of chapter 4, called a group of men, a large group of men, not just 12, but there's a pretty good crowd of people following him who are listening to him teach, who are listening to him and watching him as he confronts the Pharisees and the religious establishment, and he is teaching about the kingdom of God. Then, after the Sermon on the Mount in chapters uh, 8 and 9, he performs a series of miracles, amazing healings, and, and things of that nature. And in the process of that, he again continues to have confrontations and, and various run-ins with, with the scribes and the Pharisees. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, he's specifically going to call to himself 12 very specific, very particular individuals whom he is going to eventually name his apostles. And these individuals are, are very significant uh, in the formation of the church. They're going to be his trusted uh, ambassadors, the word apostle, Greek word apostolos, literally uh, a sent one, a, an ambassador or an envoy. And uh, these individuals, he has, they have been following him, they've been listening to him as he has been preaching and teaching, they've been experiencing his miraculous power, and uh, then he is going to, and I got a question about this already this last week, I got an email, um, you'll notice here in, in chapter 10, he tells them that when you go out, don't take a money bag or two changes of clothes, and, and he, kind of, he kind of restricts the provisions that they take with him. And one of the questions I got this last week was, well, should we provide for, for our missionary or our missionaries, should we, uh, should we be paying for them to go and spread the gospel around the world, or should they you know, be just more restricted in the provisions that they take with them, and should they be relying more upon uh, the people that they encounter in their, in their the countries in which they are sent to to provide for their needs? And it's important to remember, as we get into that, we'll look into all the particulars of that, but it's important to remember that chapter 10, Jesus is sending out 12 guys on a short-term mission trip. This is them getting their feet wet. He's going to instruct them on what they need to do. He's going to give them guidance on how they're to interact with the people in Galilee, how they're to preach the kingdom. And that is going to have significant implications for their later ministry. But it's important to remember that Jesus is training these guys, he's mentoring these guys to be like him. And so there are things that come in chapter 10 which are particular to them, but as we study chapter 10 over the next eight, nine months, a year, we're going to see exactly how it's going to apply to us today as we strive to be his disciples and to carry the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. With all that said, we're going to look at verse 1. I got about six pages of notes up here. Um, I seriously struggled with whether or not verse 1 should have three separate sermons just to go with verse 1. Um, all that to say, I find verse 1 critical to everything that's going to follow in chapter 10. I made the decision to try and do it all in one shot today. 
Um, I'm going to try and get us through it. And if not, I'll land the plane. We'll just break it off and continue it next week. But I just want you to know there's a lot of meat here, a lot of depth here, a lot of things we need to see as we uh, continue, as we get ready to kick off chapter 10. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, as many of us in this room, most of us in this room, are striving to be his disciples. There is no way to call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ without embracing the mission that he has called you to do, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what chapter 10, that's, this is a training chapter for how to do that. And so this is a very significant for how we're to live our lives. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and read as is our custom. We'll read chapter 10, verse 1, and then uh, we'll pray and we will, we will get to work. So if you would look with me, Matthew chapter 10, verse, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for his submissive, willing spirit just to come at your call, at your direction. That he was perfectly obedient to you, that he came, Father, to be like us, to take on human flesh, to take all that you are, and to walk among us as our God, as our King and our Savior to show us all that you have for us, all, all the ways that you love us, and to give us just a taste of all that you have in store for us in the future. Father, I pray, God, that we would pursue Christ, that we would pursue being like him, and that we would recognize that there is a mission to which you have called us an activity, a work which you have prepared for us. And I pray, Father, that we would pursue that with all of our heart and soul as we seek to delight in you, that in doing the work you have given us to do, we would find our deepest heart's happiness and joy in walking with your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray over the next year as we work our way through Matthew chapter 10, that you'd open our eyes and our hearts to understand, to see what it is that we are called to do, how we are to be your people. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith through your word to be the people you have called us to be. This morning, Lord, as we look at this first verse, help us to understand the significance of these 12 apostles, how they are different from us, but how we are still like them. Help us to understand what it means to have authority over unclean spirits and give us just a taste of that world which you have prepared for us where there is no more sickness, no more disease, no more deception, and no more demonic influence. We pray, Father, you'd open our eyes to see these things, that we would fall in love with those things. Cast that vision before us today. We love you, Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, uh, the, the January-February edition of Christianity Today released 
an article, it was based on research by a sociologist named Robert Woodbury, and a number of noted evangelicals began interacting with this, with this material. He's a sociologist, and uh, the article on Christianity Today was a rehashing of an essay, a, a research paper that he published in 2012, um, and it basically gives us the astonishing results of over a decade of research that he has spent studying missionaries and the impact that missionaries have had on third world countries. Um, again, this is in the January-February issue of Christianity Today, and the, the title of the article is called The World That the Missionaries Made. And in this particular article, the thesis that Woodbury puts forward is that, the, this is a direct quote from page 36, the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of the nations. So I've read a little bit more deeply into this article, and specifically this is a, this is a paragraph. Quote, where areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health and systems of health care, lower infant mortality, drastically lower infant mortality, I might add, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, specifically much higher educational attainment for women than in comparative studies where there weren't as many Christian missionaries, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations, nonprofit organizations for the betterment of society. It makes a statement. This is, uh, this is the significant thing. He says, there were missionaries who were racist, and there were missionaries who were selfish and self-centered, who engaged in sinful activity. But he makes a statement, if that were the average effect, we would expect that the places where missionaries had negative influence to be worse than the places where missionaries weren't allowed or were restricted in their activity. But we find exactly the opposite. Whenever a missionary is allowed into a country to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether they're stellar missionaries, good, solid missionaries, or whether they're, you know, mediocre, not so good, not so solid missionaries, the outcome is the same. Blessing. The Father pours out blessing. Now, there's a nuance in his research, and this is the thing that so many evangelical Christians seized upon. He, he calls it a nuance. He says, quote, um, there is one important nuance to all of this. The positive effect of missionaries on democracy and, and the positive benefits to society applies only to what he calls, quote, conversionary Protestants. Protestant clergy financed by the state, so we're talking about um, state churches, high liturgical churches such as Anglican churches, Lutheran churches, Presbyterian churches, state-financed missionaries as well as Catholic missionaries prior to the 1960s have had no comparable effects in areas where they worked. Now let me just draw that out for you in case you missed it. You've got Roman Catholic-funded missionaries, you've got high liturgical missionaries such as Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians. And then you have what Woodbury refers to as conversionary missionaries. That's his term. These would be like uh, Baptists or 
evangelical, non-denominational even, type of, of individuals who are preaching a gospel that requires a conversion to Jesus Christ, okay? In those countries where the missionaries went in to preach the gospel and to ask people to surrender to Jesus and to place their faith in Christ, that's where there was an explosive, positive blessing on the community where they just went in to do good work, where they went in just to dig water wells or to build orphanages or to do things that were good, but they did not confront people with the gospel, the long-standing positive effects were minimal or non-existent. The results of Woodbury's research is the gospel is what changes societies, and it does so in a radical way beyond just doing good works. Now that's important. That is very important because what it shows is that if we want to be a blessing to the world around us, if we want to make a positive difference in this world, it does not come from doing good works. As good as those things are, it comes from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good works, positive effect on society, positive effect on the nation comes from people making a commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Matthew is saying in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Look with me. It makes a statement, Jesus, now we already know chapter 10 is coming. In fact, in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles, the names of the 12 guys he sends out. These are their names. But in verse 1, look at what he says. The names he called to himself, it doesn't call them apostles, it says he called to himself his 12 disciples. Their missionary work in all of Galilee is founded upon the principle that first, foremost, and this is ultimately the only thing that matters. Their missionary work is founded upon their personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, the verse says, and I'm going to go ahead and cover the grammatical elements of this, and then I'm going to walk you through it. The verse says, he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. What does that mean? We're going to look at that. To cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Now, right off the bat, I'm going to give you an alternative verse. This isn't a verse from the Bible by any means. This isn't like scripture. This is just me making up a sentence to help you understand what's going on in this sentence. Sometimes when we read this, particularly if you're reading from the NIV, you're going to notice a little bit of a distortion where they're going to take one of the infinitives and they're going to combine it with one of the elements in the complement of the sentence. They're going to combine the verb with the infinitive and it's going to to be a little bit confusing. It makes it easier to read, but you lose a little bit of the meaning of the sentence when you do that. What we have here, uh, according to Dr. A.T. Robertson, this is an adverbial infinitive of purpose. Oh, of course. I, I, you're right. Most of us are like, what are you talking about? I'm going to explain it to you. I've got a good, Levi's got it up. This is, I've written a sentence to help you try and grasp what's going on here grammatically, okay? Picking your way through the Greek, this is another way to understand this sentence. It says here, Jesus calls to himself his 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to go on and heal and perform miracles. Now, when we read that, we think, okay, this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving special power to his disciples to cast out demons and to heal people. Now, that's not far off, but that's actually just a little different than what the verse is saying. And to understand this verse correctly, we're going to have to pick it apart. Now, this is how it works. Similar statement, worded differently to try and show you what's going on here. 
Here's a sentence that I just made up this last week, which is grammatically identical to the sentence, the Greek sentence that you have in your Bible. The oldest brother called to himself his 12 younger brothers. Okay, that's exactly identical to what you have in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he gave them authority, again, exactly the same as what you got in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, to drive his car to grandfather's house, comma, to drive other cars and trucks which belonged to his grandfather and to swim in the swimming pool. Okay? Now, that's the best way to understand this verse. Uh, the really old King James, the original 1604 initial translation of this verse, used a word which we desperately need back in our English language today. Wherefore? Wherefore? There's a Greek word here in the, in the uh, Greek text that isn't going to be present in most of your translations. It's oste followed by an infinitive. It's an adverb. So adverbs answer the question of to what degree, how, or where, and then it's followed by an infinitive, which is a purpose statement. Now, most of your translations, in order to smooth out that old, archaic King James English, they'll just drop the wherefore, but you need the wherefore. Okay, you need the wherefore. What's the wherefore there for? All right, I'll tell you. The purpose of what is going on in this sentence, the oldest brother is not giving his 12 younger brothers the authority to drive cars and trucks or to swim in the swimming pool. That's not what he's doing. What is he doing in the sentence? He's giving them his car so that when they take his car, he's giving them permission to use his car to drive to grandfather's house. That's the sentence. Now, what happens at grandfather's house? Well, they can drive other vehicles and they can swim. Now, the, young, the older brother's purpose in this is he wants his younger brothers to have a good time at grandfather's house. Like his desire in the sentence is for them to do cool, fun stuff at grandfather's house. But the actual structure of the sentence is that he's giving them specifically the authority to get in his car and to drive there. When they get there, they'll do this other stuff. But what he's really doing is he's giving them authority to drive. Now, I want you to look back at chapter 10, verse 1. This is what the text says. He called to him, Jesus, his 12 disciples. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits, period. Just stop there. We'll look at the second half in a, in a minute, but I want you to just look at this first statement. In some ways, in really important ways, in fact, we are different than these 12 guys. And in other ways, we're the same as these 12 guys. Sometimes when you read this text, and, and you'll hear uh, on occasion pastors teaching this, Jesus wants to give you the authority to heal diseases and to cast out demons. Okay? And, and they'll use this text as one of the, you see, he called to him his disciples, and this is what he gave them the authority to do. Now, that's not what the verse is saying. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. That's it. End of statement. Now what happens when you have authority over unclean spirits? Demons flee. People get healed. He's not giving them the authority specifically to cast out demons. Now they will cast out demons. And they will heal people. But first and foremost, what he's giving these guys the authority to do 
It's the same thing as what he's giving you and I, the authority. Authority over unclean spirits. In some ways, we are similar to these guys. And in some ways, we are different. Now, let's walk through it, shall we? First off, let's, how are we different? Let's just answer that question first. It makes a statement that he calls to him his 12 disciples, okay? So it says that he chooses these 12 guys and he calls them to himself. Now, Israel, Old Testament Israel, was founded upon 12 patriarchs, okay? Jacob, he had these 12 sons, uh, and these 12 sons eventually became the, the fathers, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. That number is emphasized repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, okay? And there are numerous prophecies in which it says that he's going to come back and he's going to ransom captive Israel. We sing these songs at Christmas time. Okay, we're all into that sort of stuff. Now, when Jesus comes back, how many tribes are left? Two. Two and a half. See, northern Israel has been dragged off into captivity. They don't exist anymore. Okay? They're not around. Samaria, not the same as what it was when we had the other ten tribes. Galilee, not the same as it was when we had the other ten tribes. What we have left is we have Judea, which is in the south, Jerusalem, and we have Benjamin. And we also have a half-tribe of Levites, the priestly tribe. Okay? So we have two, two two-and-a-half tribes that are left. The other ten are gone. Jesus is coming back specifically according to Old Testament to restore Israel. The only problem is Israel's gone. Ten tribes are gone. They don't exist anymore. They've been scattered to the nations. And yet the prophecies teach that he's going to restore Israel. So when he chooses these 12 guys, it's a symbolic act. He's making a statement. He's got way more than 12 followers. He's got hundreds of guys. He's got a whole crowd of people following him, thousands at one point. But he chooses 12 very specific individuals that he's going to invest in that he's eventually going to call his apostles in verse 2. These 12 guys are going to be representative to the world that the prophecy in which the Messiah is going to come back and restore Israel, he's doing it, but not in the way that we expect it. He's not restoring geo-ethnic political Israel. He's restoring spiritual Israel. And he's going to use these 12 apostles as the patriarchs to show that. Eckhart Schnabel makes the statement, he says, quote, um, The fact that Jesus chose the 12 disciples was what he refers to as a programmatic action. Since the disciples were not physical descendants of the 12 Israelite tribes, and since Israel consisted of only two or two and a half tribes, and he references Judah, Benjamin, and the priests from Levi, the 12 should be seen as a symbol of Israel. They represent the hope for Israel's restoration. They are the fulfillment. Now, some of you out there are like, oh, I don't know about that, Josh. That's, uh, I don't know. The scriptures bear witness to it. Three things, three facts I want you to take into consideration. Number one, the early church wrote extensively about these 12 apostles. They were popular, they were respected, they're well-renowned. We have all kinds of early church literature, extra-biblical literature, the writings of the early church fathers, in which they talked about these guys. They even did their best to try and 
remember and recount where exactly these guys all went in their ministry before they were eventually martyred. So the early church saw something very, very significant and something very, very particular about these 12 apostles, and they understood clearly that these 12 apostles, they were the foundation for the church, which is the restoration of Israel. Fact number two. The number 12 is significant because there were 12 tribes of Israel. They wanted 12 apostles. Say, well, yeah, but... Josh, what about Judas? Yeah, exactly. That's how you know the number 12 is significant. See, Judas, he betrayed Jesus, and then he committed suicide. They were down to 11. And what do we read happening in Acts chapter 1? Peter stands up, he says, he quotes scripture, he says, this guy was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting from Psalms. He says, let another man take his place. They draw lots, they get Matthias. So the fact that the 11 saw significance in the number 12 is evidenced by the fact that they had to reconstitute that number once they lost Judas. Fact number three. Jesus will often refer to the 12, but he never includes himself in that number. He never says, yeah, we're the 13. He sees himself as distinct from this group, which is perfectly consistent with him seeing himself as the Messiah, the king. And these guys, as the individuals who are going to provide the cornerstone for the church. The church is the continuation, the restoration of Israel. This is the statement that I need you guys to hear carefully, okay? Say, how is that? I thought we were starting something brand new. It's different. It is new in one sense. But it's really the continuation of something very old. Let me sort of illustrate this for you. Canadians, where did we come from? We came from England. came from Great Britain. Okay, now, where did Americans come from? Same place. Ancestrally, we're the same. Canadians sometimes like to be like, oh, those are crazy people to the south. And, and, you know, Americans to the south are like, what, there's a country north of us? I'm not sure. (laughs) But we're related, okay? Now, both countries through different means, came from the same mother country. The day after the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776, people didn't wake up thinking, I'm an American, I've always been American. They woke up thinking very much so of themselves as Englishmen who had a little bit of a squabble with their king. And the same is true for Canada. Different, not the same circumstances. We still got the queen on all our quarters and coins and currency. We still have her face there. We still very much so see ourselves as being a part of Great Britain, but if I were to ask any one of you in here, you'd tell me, and rightfully so, that no, we're a different country. But we're born out of something. There's a a, uh, consistency there, a continuation of something that previously existed. When Jesus institutes the church, 
Do you know who those first group of church members were? Not Gentiles. It's Jews. Jewish people. And, and in fact, I can show you in the scriptures that these first group of believers that became Christian, that committed themselves to the church, they thought of themselves as true Jews. They saw themselves as the real Jewish people, unlike the Jews who had rejected Jesus. I'm going to give you three scripture verses. Number one, Galatians 6.16. Paul, at the end of Galatians, makes this statement as he's wrapping up his letter. He says, and as for all who walk by this rule, he's talking about you know, those who walk with Jesus Christ, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, you know he's writing to churches in South Galatia, which are Gentile, who are flirting with becoming circumcised Jews. And he's telling them all throughout the letter, you don't got to be circumcised. And they make a statement like this, in which he says, peace upon you guys, peace upon the Israel of God. Say, I don't know, Josh, that's a little bit obscure. Okay, let's take another verse. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. It is not as though as the word of God has failed, for not all who are, now look at this, this is critical, not all who are descended from Israel, he's talking about biological, genealogical descent. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring, but, and then he quotes Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he makes a statement, you understand it in context, going back to the first part of the sentence, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he, right there in one sentence, puts up two Israels, two types of Israel. One is true Israel, one is false Israel. Not everybody who is a biological descendant of Israel belongs to Israel, in which you see clearly the Apostle Paul has in his mind two groups of people, genealogical, biological descendants of Israel, and then the true spiritual children of God, the true firstborn of the Father, true Israel. Say, I don't know about that. All right, let's check it out. Another verse. Ephesians chapter 2, 12 to 14. Again, letter of Ephesians written to church at Ephesus. These guys are all Gentile. Romans, all Gentile. Galatians, Gentile trying to become Jewish. Ephesians, Gentile. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Look at this. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, you weren't a part of Israel. You weren't a part of our, our group. This is Paul, a Pharisee a natural, biologically born Jew, writing to Gentiles, saying, hey, you Gentiles, at one point in time, you weren't a part of Israel. Now look what he says. You were having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us, now look at this, has made us both well, what, what's he talking about? Gentiles and Israel, biological descendants, spiritual children of God, people who are not biological descendants, but still in Christ, spiritual children of God. He says he's made us in Christ, both one. So the teaching of the scriptures is that we're Israel. The church is Israel. 
we're the restoration, we're the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Have you ever um, sort of had this thought? When I was, you know, in high school, I kind of had this thought that I was like sort of the lucky stepkid that got adopted in at the last second. Um, I sort of had this thought, you know, like, man, I'm a Gentile believer, and that's good, but, you know, what if I were a Jewish believer? Wouldn't that be better? Because I sort of had this mentality, I sort of had this sort of idea in my head uh, from things I had heard and from different things I had been taught that, that really the biological children, the genealogical descendants of the nation of Israel were God's preferred people. And, and we were just sort of like, yeah, I'll, I'll let you guys in too, but I'm really trying to work with this, this very particular group of people here. And, and I sort of always felt like the, the unwanted stepson, like, yeah, okay, I'm in. I'm a part of this deal, but I'm sort of like, you know, I'm like, all right, we'll let you in. All right, come on. Not like I was loved or adored by my father, equal with the other sons. That's sort of the mentality that I had. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought, man, I wish I was, you know, a Jewish Christian. That would be like the epitome of awesome. <laughs> I'm sure some of you have had that thought. Now, don't misunderstand me. Israel, biological, genealogical, the nation of Israel, they have a place in God's plan. He has a purpose. I don't have time to get into all that today. What I want you to understand is that we are Israel. Israel, genealogical, biological Israel that rejects Christ is not Israel. Now, the scriptures tell that there's a day coming in which he's going to take these genealogical, biological descendants and bring them to faith in Christ. He's going to take fake imposter Israel and make them real, believing Christian Israel. But we're in no way inferior to them. We're not a second-class citizen. We're not an adopted stepchild. We're the people of God. Now, to demonstrate this, to provide the foundation for this, this understanding. Jesus chooses 12 guys. These guys are unique and they're significant. They're important. They provide the foundation for the church. Their number is symbolic. It's intending to tell a specific truth and fulfill a prophetic promise. It is unrepeatable. You don't need to have 12 apostles running around in order to achieve God's purpose. Some of you are thinking, yeah, no doubt. No, I, I know, but like there are churches which seem to think that this number 12 is a modern day necessity. Like we gotta have a group of 12 gathered together, otherwise God can't achieve his purposes. You're like, yeah, okay, that's so obvious. I, I'm just telling you, you're going to run into this. Like, it happens. There are people who twist the scriptures this way. Some of us in this room have more immediate experience with this sort of thing. Most of us in the room, you know, like, whatever. That's not even like, I'm never, it will happen. You might run into them, okay? The 12 are a special group. We need them. We don't need to reproduce this magical number 12. And here's the point I want to make. In Israel, you had these 12 sons of Jacob. They provided the heads of the 12 tribes. And then all the tribes are kind of birthed out of this, right? 
It'd be like a guy waking up one morning in Israel looking around saying, there's a lot of idolatry going on here. That's not good. Well, let's come up with some patriarchs. Let's start this whole thing all over again. Let's, you know, let's just go ahead and get some new guys. Let's find a man somewhere with some 12 sons, and we can call this guy New Israel, right? Let's just start this whole party all over from scratch. Now, that's crazy talk. It'd be similar to you and I here today. We're Canadian or American, some of us, and we're saying, yeah, pretty sure this isn't what the original Canadians kind of had in mind. In America, it's like, whoa, dude, like, I'm pretty sure this isn't what the original, you know, founding fathers of the United States had. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get us together, some revolutionaries, we're going to go declare war on the U.S. government. We're going we're gonna to just live it out, man. What happened in the early days, that's what we're going to do today. And, you know, interestingly enough, there are some people who think that way. And so for Canadians, if you wake up and you're like, man, this country is so good, but it's, it's kind of strayed from its founding vision. I have no idea how you're going to reproduce that because it was like a hundred-year process of like where you go from being, a, you know, a subject of the British crown and, you know, there's a series of events that take place over a long period of time. So, I mean, go ahead, give it your best shot. I, I don't know how that's going to work. And see, we're laughing, and that's good because it's ridiculous. It's worthy of ridicule. It absolutely is. And in the same way, when it comes to these 12 apostles, do we revere them? Absolutely. Do we respect them? Absolutely. Do we need to reproduce them? Where do you come up with that? By no means. And in another sense as well, I, I, this is the other thing I just want to caution you about. I was uh, in my systematic theology class at the University of Dallas Baptist University. We were, we were studying the spiritual gifts and the professor, you know, he, he gave us this survey where we kind of like, you know, fill out this like multiple question thingamajigger and yet you, you add it up the numbers at the end and it kind of tells you what your spiritual gift is or some such thing like this, right? I don't, have, I don't put stock in that, right? Um, I, I, I don't trust those things. I think that there are different ways of discerning your spiritual gift. But we did this thing in my, in my spiritual, my systematic theology class. So he goes around the room, says, Josh, what do you think your, your spiritual gift is? And, uh, you know, I was a funny guy. I said, well, it's not on here, but clearly, like, New Testament martyr. Yeah, like, I'm called to go out and die, right? And everybody laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Who has the spiritual gift of martyrdom? Well, everybody should. We're all supposed to be giving our lives to Christ. Another guy, oh, I've got the spiritual gift of, of faith, or I've got the spiritual gift of teaching. We kind of went around the room, and he came to this girl, and he said, how about you? What do you think your spiritual gift is? Well, I think I've got the spiritual gift of New Testament apostle. There's an awkward silence. And how about you, sir? What do you think you're... We just kind of moved on, right? I'm not sure what people mean when they claim that. Are you one who has walked with Jesus, personally mentored and discipled by the risen Christ? These guys are important, they're significant, but they are unrepeatable. And they're not meant to be repeated. He calls to him his 12 disciples. Now, we are not like them. They are a unique group. But is he going to give them an authority, which he absolutely, he absolutely does give to you and me. Authority over unclean spirits. I just glanced at my watch. There's no way. I should have made this three separate sermons. I was right to suspect that. Um, 
there's no way we're going to finish unclean spirits today. And then after that, the whole casting out demons and healing every affliction, that would take a lot of time as well. So I'm going to just stop this here. Um, come back next week for the continuation of it. If you are here today and you've always kind of thought that you weren't special in the Father's eyes because you weren't born Jewish, or maybe because you weren't even in his sovereign, sovereign providence chosen to be born at this point in history to walk with these, these 12 apostles to be counted amongst this group, I want you to know that the Father has a purpose and a plan for you that's just as significant and just as important. I want you to just flip with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to just read this verse to you, and I want to show you something. We're going to look at verse 19, but I'm going to take you back to uh, verse 17. This, we've already looked at the beginning part of this passage. He makes a statement, for through him, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, both with the saints and the members of the household of God. Fellow citizens, okay? We're part of the commonwealth of Israel. That's the context of what's going on here. You are fellow citizens of true Israel. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Have you ever seen a house built on a really awesome foundation but with no roof? What's the purpose? There's not much of a shelter if all of the parts of the house are in place? Do the apostles provide an important function in the formation of the church? Undeniably, yes. Do you play an important, critical, necessary part in the formation of the temple where God wants to live? Absolutely, undeniably, yes. Just because you weren't born Jewish, and just because you're not an apostle, and just because you didn't happen to live in this period in human history, please don't for one second think that God the Father doesn't love you, doesn't care for you, and doesn't have a special, particular plan that is just as important as what he had for these guys. You do have a unique, pivotal role to play in your walk with Christ. Every person does who has been born, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, into Jesus Christ. My prayer for you is that you would see that, you would know that, and that you would embrace that. We're the people of God. We're the people he loves. And there are lots of other people out there that he loves too. And understanding who we are in Jesus it's foundational to pursuing them for the sake of the kingdom as well. Let's bow forward of prayer.